Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. On this week's episode, I'm pretty excited about this one. Someone I, I first met uh, attending a uh, karate tournament called the Diamond Nationals in Bloomington, Minnesota, back around, I think it was 93 or 94 when, when I first met him and, and uh, had heard about him before that and saw him in magazines and stuff and, and uh, I always looked up to him and very excited to have an Olympic gold medalist, Herb Perez, on the show today. How are you doing today, sir? My pleasure. Thank you. It's a pleasure to speak with you and speak with you again. How is everything going? It's going good. We're we're in crazy times right now, and, and I'm just I'm glad to have the technology to be able to do these interviews over the phone, which I you know, couldn't have done probably 10, 15 years ago when I first had this idea. So <laughs> it's, uh, I'm definitely glad to do it now and have have the technology behind me for it. So, so for those who don't know, if I remember correctly, you were you were born in New York City, correct? Correct. Yeah, okay. New York City uh, in Bellevue Hospital, and uh, and lived there for most of my life, and then moved over to the Jersey side of the bridge, and uh, and then finally ended up in California. Okay. Now, what to, what drew you to martial arts, or what you know, what was your first experience? Was there? Did you see like a demonstration? Did your parents decide to sign you up? Did you know? Was it a, a movie or TV show? Kind of what what led you to start your path down the, the martial arts journey? Well, there were there were three things. I think that um, fortunately, I was in the generation of martial martial artists that grew up um, along the Saturday morning Kung Fu movies that were being televised on local television stations. They had, uh, you know, every Saturday morning, we called Saturday morning Kung Fu. And I watched Five Fingers of Death in a local movie theater and everyone came out totally pumped and excited about martial arts. And I also uh, was a kid who lived in the inner city. So I lived in a place where it was kind of rough. And I uh, read a book called The uh, Son of the Flying Tiger, which was basically a uh, book very similar to Enter the Dragon. It was a tournament on an island, and they invited the best martial artists in the world to compete in it. And the Taekwondo character resonated with me to such a degree that um, I remembered it and liked the character actually more than the uh, the person who was the, uh, the the hero of the book. And when I was in had moved to Hoboken, New Jersey, I um, was being chased by these kids because uh, I didn't like the fight I had fought when I was very young in New York and decided I wasn't going to fight anymore because I didn't like that. Um, but then I decided I wouldn't be picked on. So when I ran past this uh, building in Hoboken, New Jersey, there was a small sign on the wall of it that said Taekwondo lessons in a dance studio on 3rd and Washington in 
Hoboken, New Jersey. I ran from the kids. I was pretty fast, made my way around back to the school the following day and um, met the instructor who looked at me and said, well, you're too short. Your hair is too long and you're not flexible enough. You'll never be any good. <laughs> wow. And I said, thank you, sir. And I was nine. And so at nine years old, um, I said, well, sir, you know, I need martial arts. And he said, well, your mother would have to sign you up anyway. I said, well, my mom's downstairs, which she wasn't. And I went downstairs, signed my own application, um, <laughs> brought it back up and used money from my paper route to study Taekwondo. And that's how my journey started. That's that's great. So did, uh, did your mom ever find out what you did? Or? <laughs> yeah, she. Did. I mean, she didn't find out about the signing up part. Okay. <laughs> she, uh, the way she found out was ironic. I was, uh, you know, I, my first day I went into a class and I had a paper route and I paid um, $4 a lesson back then. And I paid another $7 a week to my guitar lesson and uh, gave $5 to my house for my $20 that I made delivering papers at five in the morning. Um, I went to a tournament. I saved up my money and went to my first tournament and took a fourth place um, and brought home the trophy. And when she saw the trophy, that's how she knew I was doing martial arts. So what belt were you when you did your first tournament? I was a yellow belt. Oh, you know, wow. I, okay. I, our school was a very small school. We had about 20 people in it, but everyone competed. And what I didn't know is I had walked into the school of a uh, national champion and he was the student of a world uh, champion. And so the school, the small school that I walked into had in amongst the 20 people, you know, a national champion, a world champion, and then um, arguably the best fighters in New York at the time. So his, my instructor held his annual tournament and um, I show. I was brought there as a yellow belt to to fight, and they actually kind of halfway paid attention to me um, after that, and took me under their wings in the main school to start to compete. With that uh, first school you trained at, now with the instructor's background, was it geared more towards the sports side of Taekwondo, or was it more traditional, or was it a mixture? <laughs> Back, back then, there was only one type of Taekwondo, so there were only um, there were two types of tournaments. There were what Taekwondo point tournaments, which were full contact to the body, light contact to the head with kicks, no punches. And then there were karate tournaments, different than the point tournaments you see now. Um, there were more, uh, there were little or no contact. And so I, and then there was a third type of a tournament, which was the actual traditional tournament from Korea, which was full contact to the body and head with kicks. And I fought in my first full contact Taekwondo tournament, the Olympic style um, back then when I was a green belt. Yanwan Park in uh, Long Island, New York held his uh, national, his event, every year and, and invited Canada and Mexico in a team tournament. So we ended up over the years fighting in that and we won the uh, flag and kept it. We were the first Americans to beat both Mexico and Canada and keep the flag in the States. So that flag wow. still was in our school. So which, which of the type of tournaments did you prefer out of the, the two two styles of Taekwondo? Uh, I mean, I like, you know, I, I fought in, uh, arguably, I think the toughest tournament back then was Henry Cho's All-American. And Henry Cho was, um, Grandmaster Cho was a Taekwondo guy, one of the first guys to come over from Korea. He had the um, Taekwondo tournaments that were full contact to the body and faced with kicks. He couldn't knock somebody out. But he would invite 
all the karate guys and kung fu guys and everybody in the world. So it was arguably the best tournament if you wanted to fight everybody that mattered in any style. And so that tournament I always had a great respect for because it was it was won by Chuck Norris, by for example. And um, the, the premier winners in it were Mike Warren and Mark Williams, William Oliver, and names, names like this. So I like that tournament. I got to be honest, my favorite tournament, though, was the Olympic events because those are full contact, no nonsense, and you're allowed to knock people out. And, and I prefer that. I prefer having that. The worst tournaments I fought in were karate tournaments that had zero contact to the body or anywhere. And I got I actually got disqualified for body contact once, which I found kind of laughable. But it um, there were some great karate tournaments I would fight in and against some really great karate fighters as well. Did you ever compete in the Long Beach at Parker's tournament? You know, I didn't because I'm from the East Coast. Okay. And I'm assuming I, I've heard that his tournament was equally as challenging as Henry Cho's tournament. Henry Cho's, because we were in New York City and was the epicenter of martial arts, you had all the guys from Harlem, you had all the guys from the East Coast, up and down the East Coast. You arguably had the best Taekwondo competitors in the world on the East Coast. And so Ki Wang Kim, Ki Chung Kim, Richard Chung, guys like this, and Henry Cho, you know, they had developed some amazing Taekwondo fighters. In addition to that, you had guys like William Oliver. Oliver from Sado Karate, you had guys that were amazing, Ronald Duncan from Kung Fu and Sifu Paul Vizio and his students. So, you know, I had amazing martial artists across the board, and it was just a fun tournament to fight in. Does that still go on? Is there someone still running that, or did that kind of stop? Henry Henry Cho passed away a little while ago, um, but he ran the tournament in the Felt Forum for many years. They, they have a reunion every year. Okay. Gerald Robbins, who's Don Kung Park's uh, student and amazing athlete on a couple of national and international teams and um, a, a curator for the Taekwondo Hall of Fame. He held, holds a reunion where a lot of the Henry Cho guys still get together. But I don't believe since Master Cho has passed away, they still hold the event. And then at what point now, you said you took fourth in your first tournament and you did, you did well in the, in the team competition. At what point did you really, did you start seeing success almost right from the beginning or when did you, you know, well, start, when did you realize, what, 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 you know, hey. What, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, what happened for me was it was an interesting journey. When I was a yellow belt, I took fourth and then I first for the next 14 tournaments. And I was competing wow. virtually every week, every weekend. And then I moved to the next division and again took fourth and then took first. And that was pretty much the pattern. Even at black belt, I started. But in 1983... I decided I was going to, 82, I decided I was going to try to make the national team for the full contact for the Taekwondo. And I went to Ann Arbor, Michigan, I think it was. And um, I didn't realize there was a state championship that you had to go to. So I had to go to the open event and I won that. And then I went to the main event. And then over the period of years to follow, it took me 82, 83, 84. In 84, I took third place 85 i think i took third place 86 i won 87 i won and then i just kept winning and that's when i decided taekwondo was going to be an olympic sport i had always wanted to go to the olympics since i was about five or four i saw it on tv and i decided i was trying to figure out what sport that would be and then with the advent of taekwondo being included in the games i moved to korea and trained every year for two or three months out of the year until i ran out of money and i would come back home so it was um 
you know, I, I, I kind of did a little math and I realized that the best players in the United States weren't winning even bronze medals at the world championship. So I was figuring out where the best players were and they were in Korea. So I got a letter of introduction from Mu Young Lee, who was a uh, Ludaquan instructor out in Connecticut and friends with my instructor, got on a plane and went to train in the best university in Korea with their best. That following year, I won the national championships and then won the um, Pan American Games and I uh, went on to win the World Cup, first American to win a World Cup. And that was, was that the one that took place in Helsinki I remember reading about? Yeah, Helsinki. And I beat the Korean. I was the first American to beat Korea and I beat him in the finals. And it was a life altering event. And uh, it certainly uh, was one of many great events in my life. And then also led to other ones that were some challenging and some um, great successes. So it's been a great journey along the way. And I've been very fortunate to be part of the Olympic family and the Taekwondo family. So quick question then that that first uh, first time where you were the American that beat uh, someone from Korea. Do you, do you remember was that a close match or was it come down to the last second? Did you was it? a? No, no. What happened was I had watched, you know, I was a student of the game and I knew domestically when I would fight, I had tape on everyone. I would watch everyone fight and I would know every competitor before I stepped in the arena with them. In international events, if I didn't know the player, I would watch their first game or second game. And by the time I got to them, I would have a have something I could do. The Korean was, uh, I had knocked out my first opponent. He had knocked out his second opponent. And um, I watched his game and I saw one hole in his game. So in the very first round, I scored a uh, point against him, a huge point that he was in shock, but I had watched his game and I took it away from him. And then the second and third rounds, I took every opportunity that he had to score a point. So it wasn't a close match. And then he was so upset that he didn't come up to the award stand. They had to kind of drag him up there. And it was about, uh, took about 20, 30 minutes because really? he didn't expect to lose. And because um, Koreans back then didn't lose and he didn't believe it was possible. And then seven years later, he came to the Olympic Training Center and uh, walked up to me and I didn't know who it was. And he said, um, you know, I just wanted to take a second to say hello and apologize. And I said, what? He said, well, I was a guy you fought in um, Helsinki and I was so, um, I didn't come up to the stand and I felt embarrassed and I'd always wanted the opportunity. So I was like, oh, you know, I don't worry about it. And he said, um, listen, I'd never been hit that hard or ever heard a sound that loud. So, you know, I was, I was like, oh. and it was interesting. The reason the story is interesting is many years later, I fought Korea, different Korean in the 91 world championships. And, um, you know, I, I beat the guy pretty badly, at least in my mind. And so first round, they gave a 2-2 even score. So I was like, that's kind of weird. The guy didn't touch me. Second round, 1-1. So I knew, you know, it wasn't going to go well. And they gave him superiority in the third round. And it was uh, it was a semifinal. So it meant that I would. it was a year before the Olympics and I would take a uh, third place. But Korea didn't qualify for the Olympics. So I kind of understood the politics of it. And I don't really speak of it. But the reason I tell the story is I had at that moment been so disappointed and upset and had thought about not going to the award stand because of the what I believe to be patently unfair judging, which was common back then. But I remembered 1987 and that feeling and realized it's never the athlete, it's always the administrators and the coaches if you feel you hadn't been treated fairly. Um, and so I got up on the award stand and, and, and received my medal and, uh, and did it so with respect. The competitor I had faced was a great competitor and, uh, and deserved his day uh, of, of 
of a celebration. And so I think those are always interesting lessons. And I think as martial artists, you always have to remember those life lessons that you learn and, and try to manifest them in your daily life besides martial arts. That's a great way to explain it. So, so kind of walk us through how the Olympic thing came about. And obviously you said it was something you were thinking about since you were a child, but you know, is that something you just, you were watching for when the trials were, or did you get an invite or how did well, that, how did that happen? Well, it's a, it was a harder process back then. It's a hard process. It's actually a hard process now, although the game's changed. I mean, what happened, you know, for me, when I was a young kid, I had three monumental things that affected my life that I, when I saw them, they changed things in my life. I saw the Beatles on TV performing in Shea Stadium, and that made me want to become a guitar player. And I went on to become a pretty decent professional musician before I started doing Taekwondo as a profession. And then I had seen the Olympics a year, that same year or a year later, um, and they were walking into the stadium with the Americans with the Olymp- with the American flag and I wanted to be the guy carrying the flag into a stadium so I kept looking for a sport that would enable me to do that and then the third was the space race and um, actually landing on the moon and I wanted to be an astronaut wow. um, and, and then there was the paper chase for lawyers I watched the television show paper chase and out of those four things there's only one thing I haven't been yet not an astronaut so <laughs> and that's why I think it's important to be a role model for kids the influence of children um, and the role models and the things that happen are the things that make your life different. So because of that event, I started. I then went on a path of continual training so that I would constantly up my game and my opportunities. And I was always willing to do slightly more than everyone else was. So when it was time to become better at Taekwondo, I had trained with my instructor here and and others that could help me. And then I went to Korea. And because I went to Korea and actually trained with one of the best people in Kung Fu, Sifu Vizio, who was a uh, world champion in kickboxing 14 or 17 times in full contact, um, those two things in my life enabled me to be in a place where I would qualify for the Olympics. Back then, there was a point system where they determined which division from the United States they would try to get an Olympic spot for. And I had scored so many points internationally. I had won the Pan Ams, the World Cup, the various events over the years. So I had more points than any other athlete. So they had to qualify my spot. So that only left me qualifying for the games and beating everybody at the trials, which I did. For when you were getting ready, knowing you're going to the trials, just walk us through one typical day as far as training, like, a, you know, it's, how much training happened in like in an average day for you back then? So, you know, I was playing catch up. I always felt like I was playing catch up because Koreans were training since they were five and I had started later than that. They had a knowledge of the game, which we didn't have. So I would train six to eight hours a day. I had four training sessions a day and I would train six days a week. And even on my day off, I would do a day or a training or two. As I got involved in the Olympic movement, I tailored that back slightly. So I would take at least one day off and I had periodization so that the days were um, periodized by easy, medium, and hard. And then the practices themselves were my practice day consisted of a uh, aerobic workout, running, stair climbing, distance sprints or hills, and then body conditioning of push-ups and various types of sit-ups. My second training was a target training using um, targets and shields in uh, uh, forms of rounds. My third training was with a partner kicking each other in chest protectors, full contact, also in rounds. And then the last training of my day was always my sparring training. So that was pretty much 
you know, every training day, the only thing that changed was the intensity of it. And I was overtrained in the beginning in the sense that, you know, we were making this up as we went. We didn't have anyone helping us. We were kind of designing it ourselves. So I actually had to start to drink a formula that they gave elderly people because I couldn't eat regular food. I just didn't eat, couldn't eat when I was training. So I would drink Infamil and it was like a nutrient. I lost so much weight. I was, you know, I had a hard time keeping weight on. Then I started to become more sophisticated in my eating habits and got better at that. And it was a progression. I started in 1982 and I won the Olympics in 1992. And over that period of time, I kept refining my method, my training methods. I was using plyometrics. I was using um, resistance conditioning that I had designed a tool to do. And now I had sold it. I had uh, given it to Century, actually, an Asian world that has a, ver- a version of it. So it was a. it's interesting now because the kids have such an easier way of getting information and knowledge right. um, than we did back then. Well, that's actually a really, really cool story. So obviously yeah. it was just a nice, easy day of training, basically, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was all you did. So oh, I mean, yeah. You know, I was trying to explain, to explain to somebody the other day. I said, I would wake up in the morning and I would sit on the edge of the bed for five minutes. And they were like, why? And I said they were like are you meditating i said no my feet hurt so much that it would take me five minutes to let the blood get to my feet so i could step on the floor wow. i couldn't put my feet on the floor because my feet you know i was beating up my feet so much that it just took me time to become able to even stand and i would pretty much eat uh train sleep eat train sleep that was the entire day of naps and sleeping and competing and training and you know and i actually keep that to this day i i take a out of habit i take a nap every day at the same time before i teach or whatever else <laughs> I'm going to do. Actually, I took a nap today, and I'm not teaching. I always take a nap. <laughs> well, so hopefully, that's a, it's a habit. So. Not wasting too much. Yeah, it's a good habit, I think. So then, uh, back to the Olympics. Just kind of talk a little bit about that experience. Obviously, I mean, it had to be a pretty, pretty amazing experience. And and also, who was who was the coach for the U.S. team then? So the. The coach of the team over each event were chosen. Don Coon Park was the coach. He was my coach. He was a local. He was local to me in the sense that he lived in um, the same area that I lived in back in New York and New Jersey. He was always my like my big brother in the sense that he was a friend of my instructor. And Master Park had uh, some of the best students in the country in his school as well. And so when I made the Olympic team, I was fortunate enough. He was one of the best competitors ever in the history of Korea. He went on the first Korean team that competed in Japan against the Japanese to prove the superiority of Japanese or Korean karate. So it was, it was, you know, he was, he was a hard taskmaster. He was an interesting guy, very funny. He was very small, but very powerful. And uh, so he was my Olympic coach. And uh, I was fortunate that I had a good relationship with him and, and still too. How long before the Olympics does the training start for the team? I mean, obviously, I know some countries, they train so year-round. Year yeah, I, yeah. I think what happens with us is a little bit different. In other words, it depends on the athlete. So I was, I always had this training I had always was in a training mindset so I was always training meaning I was training um every day I never changed my training methodology and I never changed when I would train so I trained every day all the time and for for um and for different reasons so I started training years before the Olympics and the year that I was training for the Olympics I actually started my training 
the year before on a six-week cycle for every event. The good news was by the time I went to the Olympics, I wasn't having to compete. And in fact, my instructor didn't want me competing in anything that didn't lead up to the events. I only competed. I didn't have to compete in national championship. I only competed in team trials and international events. So I wouldn't see you know local guys who were trying to win except for those events. And then I only saw guys internationally. So once you make the team, then you go to Colorado Springs, the Olympic Training Center before the event to train. And so we did that for, I want to say, two months. And we went to Barcelona for a month. And in, on average, six months out of the year, I was traveling with the U.S. team somewhere. And then just talk a little bit about that, that uh, you know, your final match, you the gold medal match, kind of what was what was going through your head maybe those last, uh, the last minute or 30 seconds of that round when you kind of, you, well, well, you could you know, see it's, it. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah. So you're fighting, you know, you got to remember that at the Olympics, it's the top men in the world. Right. And so you've either seen each other before or you know of each other. So, so out of the potential guys I would fight, I knew and had beaten most of them at least once. Okay. And the only guy I hadn't fought and he was world champion the year before, was the guy from Spain. And that was my final match. But I watched the videotapes because they had video, they had a video library at the Olympic Games so you could watch tapes. And so I watched his videotapes and I watched some other tapes of him. Uh, and a good friend of mine who was a competitor of mine, he had won the World Cup the year before me and I won it the year, I beat him the year after and won it. We became dear friends. He's uh, Egyptian. And then he ended up becoming a heavyweight and winning the World Championships. Amir Khadif, he and I sat down and kind of out this guy and thought about what we would do. So it was interesting because I was fighting Spain in Spain. The king and queen of Spain were in the audience. Everybody in the world from Spain was in the audience and they were <laughs> cheering so loud that as I'm walking in the arena, the tunnel that you have to walk in under the arena is vibrating. And my friend's like, just make believe they're cheering for you. I said, no, they're cheering for him. I said, but that's going to change in about 10 seconds. <laughs> so we came out and I bowed to the king and queen of Spain and I looked in the audience and I saw all these people. You ever see the tape of it, you'll see a bunch of guys in white t-shirts with faces on it. They actually had his face on t-shirts because they assumed he was going to win and the king and queen and showed up for the final because they assumed he was going to win and that pretty much didn't quite go the way he expected it he was a great competitor nice guy won solis had he won he would have won a million dollars because that was the reward for Jeez. a gold medal at the olympics for spanish athletes yeah so great competitor great you know he was a smart competitor he was a good competitor and he had a strategy that he thought might work and it, i was ready for that strategy after all that happened and everything and, and you did you ever consider um, trying again in 96? Because it was 96 the well, first year it was a metal sport? No, 2000. That was oh, the 2000. problem. So okay. 92... Okay. 92, you know, the the Olympic experience is the same whether or not, you know, they count your medals. Oh, yeah. Total it's the same medal. So, you know, same medal, yep. same events, and, you know, best in the world. Uh, I thought about following, fighting the following year, and I didn't because I had promised my student, Peter Badatos, that I would help him win and make the national team. So he, I would have loved to have fought in Madison Square Garden in 1993 where the world championships were being held. I had won the All-American Henry Cho event there, and I thought it would be awesome to win this. But I promised Peter that I would retire and help him win, which he did. He went on to compete as a middleweight for the next eight years. And um, I did not... My my teammate, Juan Moreno, went on to compete to uh, 2000, and I was happy that he did. But he was also 10 years younger. I was in law school. I was on television. I had pretty much... I was working for the Olympic Council of Asia in 2000. So by the time that rolled around, 
Um, it was eight years later, and I've had done a lot of other stuff. And I, I believe life is about stages. So you win. Um, and my instructor, quite frankly, my uh, actually Sifu Vizio, my Kung Fu instructor, told me retire. And I said, why? He said, because you'll never do anything bigger than this. If you win another Olympics, who's going to care? And he was right. It was, you know, one was one was enough. There's no reason to do another one. I mean, you're the first first American ever to win gold and, and Taekwondo. So that's <laughs> no, yeah, one, no one can ever take that away from you. Enjoy <laughs> yeah, just enjoy, you know, enjoy the stages of your life and become, you know, a teacher, become a mentor, become something else. And I think that's, that's there are many people that should listen to that. I think there are a lot of people that do that. And I think right. that those are choices you have to make. And of course, you mentioned being on TV. And for those of you who, who don't remember, I, I used to, I was in college and used to watch this show, WMAC Masters. You were one of the stars of that show. Just oh talk, talk a little bit about how that came about because I, I got a kick out of that show. I, well, I, I loved it. I was, I was, I was. <laughs> I was at the Olympics and I got a phone call from an agent, literally, as I won. And uh, as I got back home, the guy had sent me a letter and so he, he's like, yeah, you know, we want you to go. You, they saw your your picture and they want you to go be a model. And I'm like, you know, uh, so there, there's this agency, famous agency, Ford Model Agency, and they mm-hmm. set up this meeting and I, I walk in and they're like, you're too short. I'm only 5'9", right? So you have to be six foot. So I'm like, all right, anyway. So, you know, it is what it is. So I get another phone call. Hey, they want you to um, fight in this event and it's uh, a big event. And I said, well, what is it? And they go, well, there's no rules. I go, what do you mean there are no rules? He goes, well, it's this thing. It's no rules. And I said, well, who's in it? And they said, well, you know, this guy. And I said, I don't know. I've never heard of him. And then they, they mentioned the Gracie's and I had just heard of the Gracie's. So I said, how much money is it? Because I'm in law school. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, well, how much if I win? They said, no, that's if you win. I go, that's not enough money. So I don't fight in that. And then I get a phone call about a TV show. And uh, and I said, well, what TV show? And they tell me about it. And I'm like, oh, I'm not. I'm in law school. I'm not interested. So the director, to his credit, and the producer asked me to come to New York to meet them anyway and talk to them. So after about four hours, they convinced me that it would be great to do. And I was like, ah. Uh. Then they say, well, listen, you'll get an action figure. And I'm like, a what? So <laughs> after I heard about the action figure, I was, uh, all right, I'm in. So I came in. I went down and did three seasons. And uh, it was a life-altering experience. Just a great group of guys, point karate guys and a bunch of other guys and we had a lot of fun filming it and it was a great show because we taught what i thought was important which were life skills and we were role models so it was um a great adventure for us it was a i think it was slightly mismanaged the opportunity but again amazing life opportunity wmac masters but uh all because of a phone call and all because of a guy convincing me who we are still connected he's actually out this way moved out here and runs we ran a video production company together and we filmed michael phelps as one of our videos oh, okay so i asked michael so we had a we've had a great journey and uh, i can't complain and wac masters it, it was obviously geared towards kids but you don't know how many of my my 20 year old friends and i watched that show religiously it was just because we were martial artists so we just you, loved it and I, and i had met a lot of those guys at tournaments how, you'd be, yeah <laughs> yeah you'd be surprised how many people watch it and the people that recognize you you know i remember it was an interesting subsection of people like i would be in New York and a guy who was the movie theater usher re- recognized me and I'd be <laughs> in somewhere else and the guy who was the pizza 
guy. And then there would be, uh, you know, people would walk up to me and would remember. But I think the most humbling part of that is guys like you and everybody else who say, hey, I watched that show at this point, or I started Taekwondo because of that show, or I started Kung Fu because of that show, I started this. And so I think that's always, I think that's, uh, I think that's amazing. I think that's the part that I enjoy about what we do. Oh, definitely. And of course, obviously, you, you kind of hinted around a little bit to the to the UFC. I didn't realize you had been invited to compete in that. I'm just curious, your thoughts on, on the whole, on UFC and, and, and the whole world of MMA. That's obviously grown a well, lot I, and changed. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's changed. So the one that I was, would have been in was the circus. It was a huge guy, like 600 pounds. The other guy was actually a Taekwondo guy that I knew from uh, from Denmark. Then the other guy was from the Netherlands. And um, and it was an interesting show because it had Ken Shamrock and a couple of these other guys. Patrick, can't remember his name, African-American guy. And it, it, was, it was a circus in the sense that there were guys that shouldn't have been there that were there. And then I actually commentated the second one. They asked me to commentate That's the second right. one. That's right. I remember and that. I, I was a commentator on that one. And that was still a circus. But by the time now, I, what I, I always say with the utmost respect, first and foremost, the Gracies have always been professionals in there and have always treated it with respect. And they are owed a debt of gratitude by our, our generation in general. Second, it has taken away all the nonsense from martial arts in general because there is no one perfect martial art. It's not jujitsu. It's not taekwondo. It's not boxing. It's the guy who learns how to use his body to the best of his ability as a weapon and now these guys are phenomenal athletes. I mean, I'm talking about flexible, powerful uh, technique is evolving. And so I, I have nothing but the utmost respect for what they do as a sport, as an art. I don't teach it because I don't like the aesthetic of it. Right. But you can't deny the applicability of it and the effectiveness of it, the efficacy. I read something about this, and I, you may have to correct me a little bit, but something about you being critical of like current electronic point systems in, in Taekwondo competitions. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. It's no. horrible. Horrible. So what? What is that? I, I, I what, was, what would you change about it well, if you I could? Was on, well, I was on the World Taekwondo Federation Education. I was the chairman of the education committee. They created, along with Dr. Steve, Stephen Capener, the this scoring system. We we said just like in basketball or anything else, one of the problems with the sport is, regardless of the difficulty of the technique, um, in gymnastics they have a difficulty level. You score higher, the more difficult technique. Taekwondo, you would get the same point whether you did a 360 degree back hook kick to the face or a body kick, and it was ridiculous. So what Steve and I advocate for was a multi-tiered scoring system for points based upon difficulty and risk. So if you did a face kick, that should be worth more points than a body kick, a turning kick, more points, jump kick, more points, etc. They then came up with this electronic scoring system because the Koreans were cheating so badly and so blatantly that it came to the attention of the Olympic movement because it was an Olympic sport. And the their only hope was to make it fair, even if it was horrible. So the original <laughs> systems were horrible. Well, now, in addition to a, the system being horrible and not working because it can't discern a proper technique and it, there's a lot of false positives, they wanted to take the refs out of it so much that they don't allow the ref to overrule that decision. So now you end up with um, a false positive. You can't overrule it because they don't want to trust the ref. When the easiest solution was to educate and reprimand or remove bad refs or educate the refs to a better degree. And so I had created a system where there was video review and you would have at a head table, a referee and an elite 
world championship level athlete who could review the call. And when we did that in Copenhagen, we reviewed and overturned 70% of the contested calls because the referees had made a mistake. Now, the reality is that the mistake was because the sport had gotten so quick and so fast that you could not score it as a human necessarily accurately. Well, the electronics don't work because it can't discern between a proper technique or something that you learn how to game the system. So Olympics, the Olympic sport of Taekwondo has de-evolved into a really bad version of point karate. I mean, at least point karate is athletic and good. This is really just ridiculous. You don't need to be athletic any longer. It's about just sticking your foot up in the air and placing it on somebody without actually kicking because the referee can't overturn it, even if it's not a proper technique. Um, There's nobody getting knocked out. There's nobody getting hurt. There's no full contact anymore. So the risk reward is terrible. They allow pushing and grabbing. So it's really, I don't, I don't know a single Olympic athlete that watches the Olympic competition. My friends and I have tried, we turn it off after about two minutes. And I'm talking about the actual Olympic games where we would stay up late at night to watch it. And the past few weeks, just turned off and we 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 we, I don't want to say we joke about it. We lament about it, as does everybody else in the sport. But the Korean uh, people that are in charge of it and the hoodlum president who, you know, is running it, Cho, it's horrible. He's terrible. He's a terrible leader. He cares more about um, going around the world and spending the WTF money than he does about fixing sports so it matters. That's too bad. I mean, especially as hard as they work to get it into the Olympics, it's really sad what it's become. It's Well, you know, it's sad for this reason. So imagine that I have a son or you do or someone does. And in fact, I have a son who's fairly athletic. And so I can't in good conscience tell him or anyone that they should focus on Taekwondo for two reasons. One is I'd rather teach the Taekwondo the kind of matters and not the style of Taekwondo. There was a time when you could practice. You would ask this, what kind of Taekwondo school is it and well the reality is that we teach back then one type of taekwondo now we have to teach three we have to teach what we consider to be taekwondo we have to teach forms which have really nothing to do with taekwondo they were karate originally we now have to teach olympic style taekwondo which has nothing to do with either of the three so it's how do you tell your child and then there's no monetary reward or scholastic reward as far as scholarships to get into colleges so other than so if you're going to do that so then why not just practice the second where you can actually be effective, condition your body and be useful and be part of an art. And so that's what I teach. It's difficult, if not impossible, for me to suggest to somebody that they should do Olympic Taekwondo. And now you're currently a eighth Dan? Yeah. And when, after this interview, probably won't be able to get my ninth. But again, <laughs> I'm, I'm being critical of, of the WTF, not the kooky one. And those are two right. separate organizations. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, but I, I'm, I'm luckily, I'm, I'm past the age where I need anything from anyone. So I, I'm happy being an eighth on an Olympic gold medalist, world champion, Pan American, you know, all American. And uh, so if I don't get a ninth on because somebody's mad at me in Korea, I'll be okay with that too. <laughs> and where and where is your current school that you, you run? Or you have more than one? I have uh, four. four yeah, I have four locations in California, the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, we have. Well, it's hard to talk about them now because of the, the horrible COVID virus, but right. we're Ho- doing okay. Hopefully, by the time this airs, they'll be <laughs> you'll be able to start teaching full time again. If all goes well, we'll see. Fingers crossed. But. Yeah, we're, te- we're <laughs> teaching, we're teaching, we're teaching, we're teaching. We got kids in. I taught today. It's a Sunday. Had a nice class and socially distanced and everything else. We'll nice. see. So, just a, a few, few kind of f- fun questions type things to to, to wrap things up here first of all if someone were to approach you whether like a friend or a parent and just saying hey i want to get my 
kid involved in martial arts. What are just some tips and advice you tell them, and, you know, what to look for in an instructor, what to look for in a school type thing? So the very first thing I tell people is go to the school and watch the instructor teach. And the reason to do that is you look around the room. If you like what you see, meaning you're watching the way the instructor is teaching and he's teaching the kids. Second, look around at the level of his advanced students and see if there are many and if they're staying. Because if there are many and they're staying, then he's doing a good job on retention, which means he's doing a good job of teaching his parents vote with their dollars. Third, pick the sport or martial art that resonates with your child. So if you're forcing your kid to do jujitsu and he wants to do something else and find something else that resonates, because we're all teaching the same thing. We're teaching life skills and uh, some version of self-defense. And it doesn't really matter what martial art you practice. The discipline of the martial art is more important than the art itself. And so at the end of the day, parents choose based on proximity usually. So um, they're not making an informed decision because most parents aren't informed enough to make a decision. And I don't mean that in a bad way or a good way. They just don't know enough unless they've practiced before what they, what would be better for their particular situation. And then quite frankly, even if an adult has practiced, 90% of them are going to walk into the school that was down the street from them or their parents brought them to. So their experience on the aesthetic of martial arts is going to be based in a large part on what they were taught. So, and that's not wrong or right. It just is what it is. So it's, it's hard and it's always about quality of instruction. At the last and last thing I'll say, although the people that tend to sit in the audience tend to be fans, talk to the people in the audience, talk to the people sitting in those chairs when you're bringing your kid in for that class and see what they're saying, see what they think about the place, because they're having a real life experience with the place at the moment. And they're going to tell you what they think about the instructor. I think we all do a fairly good job of teaching. And I think we all do a fairly good job of uh, being what we think what it should be. But at the end of the day, it's all about whether it resonates with that family and that child. So then in all your years of martial arts, is there a specific like one or two maybe certain philosophies that you've learned in martial arts that you really hold true to your heart or that you come back to quite often? Somebody pointed this out to me the other day. I was looking for a quote because I shoot a lot of life skill videos for our kids where we use students to. And I'm always trying to find the right quote for the life skill. So there's a quote by Musashi in his later years, not in the Book of Five Rings, where he says, his first thing as a samurai was, accept where you are, what your reality is at the moment. So what does that mean? Well, if you walk out into the field and you see 20 guys with swords, you can complain about it, you can lament about it, but the truth is, deal with it. It's there now. You can wish it shouldn't be that way. It may not be fair, it is what it is. So that's my favorite quote these days in light of the COVID virus. And um, the reality is, it is what it is. So the question isn't whether you should accept your reality, you don't have a choice. You can either waste time complaining about it, or you can find a way to find the positive in this. This has been an amazing time for martial artists to redefine themselves, to work on on things that they thought were important in their life that they didn't have enough time to do, to focus on a new skill that they never had time to do, or to develop something new. This is an amazing time for families so that families can enjoy time with their children and their wives and their husbands that they normally wouldn't have that much free time with. So barring all the economic hardship, the communal distress, and the feeling of hopelessness, you've got to kind of look at it. And I think um, that quote from Musashi, the only other thing that I always have said, and I will continue to say, is the three words that I think matter, and that are patience, perseverance, and determination. If you have those three life skills and you subscribe to them and you actually enact them in your life, everything will work out just fine. Be patient because most things worth achieving take time and learning certainly does. Be determined. Don't be 
be dissuade from your goals, no matter what anyone else says or does or what happens to you. And then finally, no matter how hard it gets, persevere. And because of those three things and the way that I looked at them, I was able to um, keep going to become an Olympian and then ultimately become an Olympic gold medalist. And do you have a favorite? I mean, you've, you've mentioned a few books already. Is there a, one specific martial arts book that you consider your favorite that you maybe read multiple times? Or I, I mean, I, I, I will, yeah, I will give people five. So what I would say okay. is this. Um, I, I like first and foremost the art um the making of a martial artist by Sang Kyu Shim. It's out of print, but you can get it um, if you look at Black Belt Magazine or Taekwondo Times. He was the original publisher of that magazine, The Making of a Martial Artist. It was a great book on philosophy and Taekwondo and martial arts. The Book of Five Rings, obviously, by Musashi. The um, Believe it or not, The Tao of Chi Kondo, I became a fan of years later. The Art of War, I've always been a fan of. And then finally, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Melman, who was an Olympic trampoline gymnast who got injured um, at UC Berkeley, but went on to become kind of a self-help guru. I read that book and I thought it was really just an amazing book and had a lot of left lessons. Two in there I haven't heard of, so two more to add to my list for sure too. So and Yeah, then, good book. Yeah, good and then final, final question, or possibly two questions depending on your answer. Uh, favorite mm-hmm. martial arts TV show and or favorite martial arts movie? Maybe a guilty pleasure? Just oh one my if gosh. It's, if it's on, you gotta watch it. You know, um... I've got a lot of favorite martial art movies, but I will say that one of my favorite all-time martial art movies, I want to get the name right. What is it? Uh, it's a monkey. What is it called? Um, this is a martial art movie. It was It was, uh, it was about this guy being, he was uh, like monkey kung fu. I, let me, okay. Iron Monkey is what it's called. I'm pretty sure it's Iron Monkey. That is one of my favorite. The opening scene in it is amazing. I think I have that one. That sounds um, familiar. Yeah, I, think, I believe it's the Iron Monkey. And it was Jet Li in it, believe it or not. Iron Monkey. And there's an Iron Monkey 2. Okay. Um, it's a 1993 film. It's an amazing movie with, um, it's just a funny story and the martial arts in it and the choreography in it is amazing. Nice. And so what was the other one? You said movie well, or? T- and, and or TV, TV show. show other than WMAC Masters, obviously. I was going to say it would have to be WMAC Masters. <laughs> if it's not that, you know, I've watched a handful of others. The, I tried to watch that new one. Badlands, which oh, um, into the Badlands. It was actually pretty decent. Yeah, I, I, I got into it. Yeah, yeah. I t- there's another couple out there like that. None of them have really resonated. Unfortunately, I think there are some guys out there that could have pulled it off. And I don't know what he did to make Hollywood mad, but with <laughs> the Costco's was probably the next guy that could have done it. Oh, Mark but, the Costco's, um, yeah. He's an ama- yeah, he's amazing amazing his father had a great legacy and so did he and so i fully expected him to have some show like that but they haven't really been able well, he to did pull uh, he, he did great... the, he did the crow tv series for a short time i don't think that lasted more than and a I season or two that, yeah yeah that could have been it but they don't it just you know the the things that happened in wmc masters it was the right idea and they just had the wrong they were funded by Bandai Toys, and they just had the wrong idea at the end of how to really fund the show. Right. But that was the that was what that's the kind of show I like. It's got to be driven by life skills. It's got to have characters that are laudable and heroes. And I think the show had that. And there aren't really many shows like that on TV. There are a lot of movies like yeah. that. You know, I watch a lot of. I love a lot of the martial arts movies, even the ones we just watched. Romeo Must Bleed or Romeo. Oh, Romeo Must Die. Die yeah. Yep, that's a great yeah, movie. Yeah, and that was a great that was a great movie. So I'm a fan of uh those those type of shows yeah the uh, one of the, one of the ones i remember when i was a kid i think it only lasted one or two seasons when i was probably like eight years old mm-hmm. or nine years old was a uh, sidekicks with ernie Ray's jr 
Yeah, that I, was didn't, a fun I, didn't, show. I didn't get a chance to see that. Yeah, I think that was great. I mean, you can't, listen, go Chuck Norris, you know, you can't go wrong with a Chuck Norris uh, TV show oh, either, yeah. right? Walker, so, Texas Ranger, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's on it's on four or five channels every day, every <laughs> 12, somewhere in the country, in the world, so, you know. It's why the, sure. the important thing is, uh, you know, they're, they're getting martial arts out there, obviously, and you know, you know, they're, you know, hopefully, hopefully, something like that, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Power Rangers, any any you know, WMAC Masters, any of those shows that will hopefully get a young person involved, you just can't go wrong with it. Well, well, I think I think that's I think you've hit on it correctly, and I think that's what you know what I would say to people is one of the reasons I to continue acting, besides not being the greatest actor in the world, probably I'm not wanting to take the time to do it either. Um, was there's one martial art star per generation and that martial arts star is the guy so if you really think about it for the short period of time there was a bruce lee before bruce lee there was a sunny chiba after the bruce lee there was a chuck norris after chuck norris there was a van damme after van damme there was a seagull after seagull you know you had jason stratham for a short period of time in his movies and then that's it so there's only one guy that really manifests that the only and most of that has gone away. The only people that have espoused a ethic have been Chuck Norris and back. Uh, and maybe Seagal, actually. Fair enough. Not fair enough to say that as well. And so there's only one of those. There hasn't been one as of late. And I really did think it was going to be just Costco's for a while, but it obviously has not been. But who the next one is, I'm not sure why or, or what it'll be about. I'm not sure. But it's it's got to be that Old West kind of... Um, John Wayne kind of ethic, you know, they're, they're heroes and they stand by a code. And until you get that, I think you're not going to find that one. I'll be waiting for it. That's for sure. But well, I just want to thank you again for, yeah. for taking the time to sit down and chat oh, with us. And learn I, hope about I, ram- I hope I didn't ramble too much. Feel free to cut out whatever you want to cut out, but oh, no. it was a delight as always. <laughs> no, it's been delight. fun. Thank it's you a- for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you'll join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.